It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, but perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999. I'm your host, Phyllis Gove, and with me today is Joanna Robinson, senior writer at Vanity Fair, host of Little Gold Men and the lost podcast, The Storm. Um, she is back to talk with me about In Excelsis Deo. But before we get to that, um, 1999, were you watching The West Wing? Was this a show that came to you later? How, uh, how does The West Wing enter your life? I'm so glad that you told me before we started recording that I wasn't like the finale of the West Wing uh, podcast because I was I was going I was like if you ask me about this <laughs> I feel like I don't have the proper bona fides to be the finale guest in 1999 
fall of, mm-hmm. I was a freshman in college and I didn't watch any television when I was a freshman in college. I was in the sure. dorms and I was just like, there are people all around all the time. I didn't, you know, we like played video games on the TV in the, in the common room, but like never watched TV. I even like Buffy Vampire Slayer was my Bible and I dropped off of that for that year. Really? So, so season four of Buffy is a little shaky. I've, I've watched it since, but like I didn't watch it live. So no, <laughs> I didn't watch this in 1999. And in fact, it took a couple years I knew people loved the show. I knew, you know, it was really great. But since I had missed its launch and it wasn't as easy back then to just sort of like, you couldn't just like stream it or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I actually think what happened is at some point it went into syndication. So it must have been, you know, many seasons later. uh, And it was airing, I want to say on TNT in like Bravo? one of those or, or TNT or something like that. Bravo was later maybe because I, I know I it think, did air on Bravo. But. Yeah, I think it was like TNT when they were doing, they were doing like, Buffy and Angel in the middle of the day or that one over to FX at one point. But anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, it was on something in the middle of the day every day. And so like some summer, I watched like two episodes of West Wing every day as it aired in the middle of the day um, on TNT or something like that. And that's how I caught up. And I was like, oh, this show's great. I should have been watching this the whole time. Uh, And I've since gone back and rewatched it through, um, I think, a couple times. So I think eventually I have the bona fides. (laughs) You're not not alone. I I think the only person... um, thus far is Sarah Watson who watched it live. Um, Most people uh, came to it later, myself included. I I didn't watch it until the DVD box sets came out and I caught up and then I started watching it live from season three onward. Um, But it isn't, I mean, the show was a hit out of the gate. So it wasn't as though people weren't watching it. But it is interesting how it's become a staple to people, so many people, in fact, um, retroactively. Uh, It's, I guess it's a testament to, you know, how lovely the show is and and sort of, you know. Well, I think it's it's interesting. Not even Emily or Alan watched it live? I, 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 Alan, possibly. I okay. know that Alan remembers watching, like, the original pilot, like... Screener. Disc or, or, or you know, screener or what have you, <laughs> yeah, and was yeah. at the TCAs for it. Yeah. I'm sure he did watch it live, um, but we didn't really get into that. We had bigger... Emily had much bigger thoughts about uh, about the West Wing than I'm sure. uh, when she had watched it. But. I'm sure, I'm sure. No, um, it's, it is interesting. And actually, thinking back on it, I think I probably watched Sports Night before I watched sure. West Wing. Um, and then I think sp- loving Sports Night was what mm-hmm. got me most interested in watching West Wing. So. Do you, I mean, it isn't, I, I, I'm having a great time doing this miniseries for, for a myriad of reasons, but, you know, Sorkin is a somewhat divisive figure to some degree or another. Uh, there are people that, that stand him hard, mm-hmm. um, and then there are people that uh, aren't as smitten with him, and then there are people that just downright don't like him. So I do feel like he covers the spectrum, but I do think that this show is widely seen as sort of his, perhaps his greatest accomplishment, or or the thing that is the most sort of critically acclaimed, perhaps. I mean, Social Network, the script, but that's a Fincher, you know, sort yeah, of thing. So it's sort of, Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I was thinking about this because I was like, I was wondering why The West Wing works so well, um, yeah. at least for the first you know, definitely for the first four seasons when Sorkin is on it. And um, and some of Sorkin's other stuff, which I watched in their entirety, like Studio 60 and, and The Newsroom, like, don't work quite as well. Part of that is, um, you know, that, that old tale of, like, once a writer gets, uh, is tremendously successful, like, maybe some of their 
fire or inventiveness is not quite as there because now your life is a lot easier (laughs) than it ever was and you don't know what it's like to sort of actually have real problems. So that's like one thing. But the other thing is thinking about collaborators. You you mentioned kindly as we started that I'm doing a podcast about Lost and something I think about all the time is Lost is a show that comes out of three minds, J.J. Abrams minimally, Damon Lindelof, Carlton Cuse. Uh, Lindelof and Cuse then go off to make their own stuff and in bifurcating that way. You can watch their journeys and say, oh, Carlton brought this and Damon brought this. You know what I mean? And that's the, that's the cocktail that I was watching. And so with the West Wing, like what is the cocktail that we were watching there? Like John Wells is on the show or Tommy Mm -hmm. Salami. Like Mm -hmm. what are they bringing? Like Sorkin's dialogue is Sorkin's dialogue. And and that's true no matter what you're watching. But in terms of maybe some of the other choices, like hearing, because I wish I've listened to some of West Wing Weekly, a great, a great podcast. podcast. And like listening to those actors talk about uh, their experiences, like Tommy was so integral into what the show was. And so you can't really divorce, you know, those other influence, like what was the cocktail? You know? Well, it's, you know, they go on to do Studio 60 together, which I mean, is its own, a less East. palatable cocktail, yes. yeah, yeah, a less palatable cocktail, mm-hmm. um, and and I and I have to say, and this is nothing, uh, you know, negative towards Greg Matola, but what he brought to Newsroom does feel different. Um, it has a different energy. It certainly is stylistically different, and. I, some might argue not as successful a television show. Now, again, I think that the Newsroom, written in a vacuum. Sorkin with basically let let to do whatever he wanted to do and and thus we got the newsroom for all good and bad that came with it. Mm-hmm. Um you know you mentioned also the the sort of uh the level of success that obviously Aaron Sorkin had off of the West Wing but even during the West Wing obviously there's a tremendous amount of success but I would I would agree with you that this is the only show that feels like he really had his feet to the fire in terms of how many episodes had to be made on crazy, you know, on, a, on, a, on an unbelievably difficult schedule. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll talk a little bit about his, the, the writing process, because this is an episode that was somewhat contentious for a little right. while. Uh, they, they worked it out uh, in the early days of the internet together. But I do think that the writers and Sorkin do feel like two separate entities uh to him in a weird way yeah yeah it's interesting um i um i want i mean i want your insight on this obviously Mm. because you've you've worked uh in writers rooms but um i think a lot of people don't quite understand how television is written and how tv Mm. credits work and all of that sort of thing most people maybe don't understand and i didn't (laughs) i i certainly didn't understand let me plug yet another podcast i certainly Mm. didn't understand until i started listening religiously Several years ago, to the Nurse Writers Panel podcast, uh, which was so ed- Blackers podcast, which yeah, is yeah. Yeah, 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 so educational to me in terms of how writers' rooms work and stuff like that. And I'm st- there's stuff I still get wrong because writers' rooms are different, you know. All, yep, but yep. but listening, knowing a little bit about this controversy, which we'll get into, mm-hmm. uh, it reminded me of of listening to the Buffy writers talk about Joss, who is of course Joss Whedon is divis- way more divisive than Aaron Sorkin at this <laughs> point Sor- and, at this stage, uh, yeah, yeah, and like wildly problematic, but like. I think he and Sorkin had similar processes, which is um, if they're not writing the script themselves, whoever writes it, writes it, and then it gets a top polish and a, and sometimes a very significant top polish. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So mm-hmm. no matter who's credited on a, on a Buffy script in those early seasons, Whedon gave it a pretty hefty 
top polish. And, and, and we know that the same is true for this episode. Um, so it, it, it should also be said too, that, um, you know, we're talking about showrunners with very specific, distinctive voices. Um, this isn't to say that if you don't have a distinctive voice, you're not a good showrunner or whatever the case might be. But I do think that, Aaron Sorkin in particular, and, and I would I would clump in, you know, your Joss Whedon's and Amy Sherman Palladino's into this in terms of that that there's a, a melodious quality that the words seem to sound right in their own head, and right. thus they kind of do a pretty heavy polish. Um, you know, I, I have not worked on shows with showrunners like that. Um, you know, when when Sarah Watson was on last week, uh, I talked about uh, I asked her about that. You know, she had worked has worked with Jason Kadams, who uh, has a very interesting style in terms of no episodes are actually allocated to people uh, until relatively far down the road. So so your staff is all working consistently Mm. and not sort of honing in on their particular episode, um, which is, I think, a really interesting way of doing things. I've worked on shows that are much more gang-written, where, you know, it's it's just a very different style. Um, You know, Aaron Sorkin, it seems, and again, you know, we'll get into the specifics of this episode and him and Rick Cleveland, but it does feel as though he he sort of created kind of jobs for people within specific episodes. He'd have DD work on a certain thing on an episode, or he'd have, and he kind of would have them work on certain lanes and then bring their their research or their experiences to that, and then he would go off and he would write an episode right. or something to that effect. Right. Um, you know, this show is a miracle in a myriad of ways. And one of them is the way that it was actually written because it shouldn't work. And at a certain point, stopped working, I guess, for no. Warner Brothers and decided that they needed uh, to to move on. Um, but yeah, so I, I want to kind of... Um, I'm going to give a synopsis uh, on this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Christmas Eve approaches, President Bartlett eagerly sneaks uh, out of the White House for some last-minute Christmas shopping while a haunted Toby learns more about a forgotten Korean war hero who died alone on the district's cold streets wearing a coat that Toby once donated to charity. In other hushed corridors, uh, Sam and Josh ignore Leo's advice and consult Sam's call girlfriend Lori concerning her confidential clientele when one political rival hints at exposing Leo's previous drug problem. CJ wonders aloud about the president's public response to notorious to a notorious hate crime while her personal relationship, sorry, personal resolve weakens as persistent reporter Danny Kincannon continues to ask her out. In Excelsius Deo aired on December 15th, 1999. It was written by Aaron Sorkin and Rick Cleveland uh, and was directed by Alex Graves. 14 Point two three million people turned into this episode. Oh my god, which is pretty crazy. I mean, anytime, um, anytime someone brings up the ratings from long ago, we're like, oh my god. All right, anyway, different time, different, different time, different times. Um, so I, I, I'm just going to dive right in. Let's tear off the bandaid in terms of the the drama that that mm-hmm. uh, happened and the backstory of this episode, and then we'll get into the plot. But um, I want to read just a, a little portion of just a sort of from thirty thousand feet. Essentially, what happened was a New York Times piece was written. Um, which exposed a sort of uh, rift between Aaron Sorkin and Rick Cleveland. Um, And a part of this article reads, Mr. Sorkin, the dominant figure of the West Wing, has stirred some enmity among writers, partially because he takes credit for every episode and partly for an incident during his Emmy triumph last September when the series won multiple Emmy Awards. One of the awards for writer on a dramatic series went to Mr. Sorkin and Rick Cleveland, a writer on the show, and uh, for an episode about the death of a homeless Korean war veteran. Days before the Emmy ceremony, people connected to the show said that Mr. Cleveland sent Aaron Sorkin an email saying that 
that if he won, he would like to say a brief word in honor of his father because the episode was autobiographical. Mr. Cleveland's father, a Korean war hero, uh, had spent the last years of his life as an alcoholic living in flop houses, and Mr. Cleveland had lost touch with his father when he was 13. After his father's death, uh, Mr. Cleveland had found that his father had numerous war decorations and sought to bury him in Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, However, at the actual award show, Aaron Sorkin did not let Rick Cleveland speak and said that uh, Cleveland said that the episode, uh, the Emmy episode was somewhat humiliating. Aaron Sorkin responded on what it seems was early days of television without pity, if I'm not mistaken, Joanna. Yeah, correct. Uh, it, it should be said that Aaron Sorkin uh, didn't understand the internet in 99 and still doesn't understand it today and perhaps didn't think that this would get as much ink or as much coverage as it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't make, uh, uh, I'm not making excuses for what he then did. Uh, he basically said, on most TV staff, stories are pitched, broken, and outlined by a group, then assigned to various writers on the staff, then polished by the showrunner. That's not the way it works on the West Wing. I write the scripts with the enormous help of a staff that provides research and kicks ideas around with me as well. Uh, I like a new play being written every week. They work really hard and do a great job, and they're all going to write their own scripts one day. But So by way of gratitude, I give them each a story by credit on a rotation basis. The credit comes with money. He then said, in the first season, I was doing both the West Wing and Sports Night at the same time and wanted to try seeing if the West Wing could run like a normal TV show. I gave a staffer named Rick Cleveland a script assignment. He wrote a script called A White House Christmas, wherein the First Lady's cat trips a Secret Service alarm. I can't remember much else except mention of maybe a business card found in an old coat Toby had donated to the Goodwill. I threw out Rick's script and wrote an Excelsius Deo. Uh, because Rick had worked on this for months, I gave him, rather than a story by credit, a co-written by credit and put his name ahead of mine. For my script, he received a Humanitarian's nomination, an Emmy Award, and a Writers Guild Award. Every Emmy nominee gets a, a letter from the producer of the telecast very clearly stating that only one person is allowed to speak when accepting, which is nonsense. Not uh, after, which is not true. After the person is done, the orchestra plays them off, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Rick Cleveland could have uh, had a speech that night for all I cared. It wasn't my call. At the end of the season, Rick was fired, not by me, and uh, but for economic reasons. Uh, it was by John Wells. And for a lack of performance, he was hired on Gideon's Crossing, where he was fired by Paul Atanasio for the same reason. This is what he wrote on the internet. So um, it, it, it definitely has this sort of, okay, what are we doing here, Aaron? Like, maybe you should. So then Rick Cleveland responds. Says, first this, is off, a, this is on a message board. This like, is on a message board, everybody. So clear. like this isn't yeah. like in the New York Times or what have you. No, but no. you know, this is and 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 it should be said too, you know, later in season three, we have lemonlyman.com, which is a which is a direct correlation to all of this. And yeah. Aaron Sorkin certainly um understands what he did now. Yes. Uh, but at the time, Rick Cleveland then replies and said, first off, for anyone who's interested in my draft of the script, I wrote three, is available in the WGA archive. I'm pretty sure anyone who stops by can read it. Uh, if not, I'll be glad to make it available. It's called A White House Christmas. Aaron got that much right. The A story is mine, not just the idea, all the way down to the name of the homeless Korean war veteran, Walter Huffnagel. Even Toby's visit to his brother, although I didn't make him mentally challenged, Aaron did. Uh, other stuff is also mine, the new Millennium stuff and the teaser, as well as the stuff about CJ's Secret Service nickname, uh, which was my wife's idea. Aaron's a great writer and he did a great job rewriting the script, but he didn't do it alone. He didn't give me a writing credit. Uh, and what galled me on Emmy night wasn't that he didn't let me speak. It was that he ignored me completely. For the record, the writing credit on the script was indeed arbitrated by the WGA. They decided by my work 
and decided my work warranted a co-writer credit on the teleplay. Also, for the record, every script written during the show's first year by staff members was automatically submitted for arbitration at the request of John Wells as a measure of protection for us to keep Mm -hmm. Aaron from poaching or cannibalizing scripts to the point where he wouldn't have to give credit where it was due. As for being fired by lack of performance, that's not true, at least as far as I know. Uh, The fact that Aaron, John, Tommy submitted the script I co-wrote for Emmy uh, consideration validates my contribution to the show. At least I think it does. Also, I did get fired off Gideon's Crossing. In closing, <laughs> I'm very proud to inform you that I'm currently writing on Six Feet Under, which is personally my favorite show. Great show. Uh, so here we go. Aaron Sorkin responds to this. Oh <laughs> I apologize, but I feel like it needs to just, I want to use no, their words. I don't, don't want to apologize. Don't, you don't have to apologize. I, just to our listeners, this is how it goes. Yeah. So Aaron Sorkin responds, boy, I kind of like this end. So Rick, if you're out there, I and everyone else appreciate the contribution you made to the episode. It was crucial. I was dead wrong to imply otherwise. I deeply regret not having thanked you that night. It was nothing more than nerves. As for you not being allowed to speak, I'm sorry, but that's what the producer's decision was. Again, he keeps hiding behind this, but anyway. Uh, I thanked... Uh, those involved with the pilot, not just the pilot, but the production of the series as well, because I wasn't just the co-writer of that episode, I was the co-creator and executive producer of the show. Um, you wrote what I felt to be an unduly nasty piece in the Writers Guild magazine. And after I read it, I called you out and I apologized. I then made arrangements for you to not only speak at the Writers Guild award show, uh, but so you could have the entire stage to yourself. The unfortunate incident was dragged out once again by Bernie Weintraub, in the New York Times. I retracted too quickly. I reacted too quickly to what I felt was an egregiously unfair characterization of the way the writers are treated on the West Wing. Further, I am remarkably and stupidly naive about the internet and never imagined my response to a post would be picked up by Slate or by anyone else. The episode we did together remains one of my proudest moments of the series. I enjoyed every day of the year we worked together. Six Feet Under is a wonderful show. I'm sure you're proud of it. I wish you nothing less than what you deserve, health, happiness, and another Emmy. To which... Rick Cleveland says, thank you for being such a mensch about putting uh, what I hope is a dignified end to this mess. The year I spent working with you on the show and our episode remains one of my proudest moments of my career. Uh, And just so you know, I never spoke with Weintraub or anyone else at the Times, nor would I have felt the need to. I hope you guys sweep the Emmys once again this year. Best of luck with the third season. So it all kind of worked itself out in the end. Um, But... it does feel like someone talked to Aaron between uh, the first right? and the second, and they're like, "Buddy, just just put this away." But he just... doesn't even even in the last piece, right? Yeah. yeah, he's still kind of not really owning up to the situation at hand. Now, I want to just be abundantly clear. I think that Aaron Sorkin is a genius. I love yep. this episode. We're going to get into it, and we're going to talk about all the wonderful things about the West Wing. Um, you know, making television, as you alluded to earlier is a messy business, right? Mm-hmm. It's the commodification of creativity. It's the idea of, it's, it's like a factory of, of art. <laughs> like, that's a hard thing. Um, and there's a lot of egos involved. And I understand that all, all of that, uh, perhaps all too well. But I do think that, you know, it's pretty clear that Aaron doesn't like to be challenged Mm-hmm. And and that and and he does things the way he does things, and that's the way that it is, and just deal with it. Um, there are people that live in that rarefied air. I'm sure you've interviewed many of them, and you've done research on many of them, and and they're all very talented people. And I don't want this to sound as though I'm throwing you know shade or dirt at at Aaron Sorkin, but I do think that when you run a show the way he runs a show, things like this can happen. Yeah, there's and there's a little bit. Can I add a little bit more? Please, please, please. So I got I listened to 
I was going to not listen to the West Wing Weekly episode about this episode because I didn't want to like <laughs> repeat what they said. But then I was talking to a friend of mine who is Over a here. West Wing fanatic. Mm. And he, uh, my favorite thing about him, this friend of mine who's a West Wing fanatic, is anytime we're watching anything, he'll be like, oh, yeah, he played Senator Blah 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 on this episode <laughs> of the West Wing or like whatever. He can like any actor, he can be like, oh, yeah, so and so played a justice, blah, blah, blah. That's amazing. Wow. Okay. Um, but, um, he was like, you have to listen to Richard Schiff's interview on that on that episode because he talks about how he cried when he first read the script. So the way that Richard Schiff tells it, yeah. who also who won an Emmy for this episode, he right? Did. He did. Uh, that he got the script and he cried because he thought it was so bad. Uh, and he got usually he said this is the first time we had gotten a script from a writer before Aaron had had a chance to do his sort of top polish on it, Oof. and he said he cried because it was so bad, not because not because the story is so bad because the, the main story was there and it stayed, you know what I mean? And so like, uh, you know, the the fact mm-hmm. that that Sorkin should give credit for the story idea not being his is is true, but he said the way that Toby was written where he was mm. sort of like reluctantly pulled into this, where he was glib and cracking mm. jokes and all this stuff like that. He's like, that to me just didn't feel like the character that I was creating and I didn't know how to play him and I was really mm-hmm. upset about it and all this sort of stuff like that. Um, and then he said he found out later that the that the part was originally written for Sam, that it was originally going to be a Sam storyline. Oh. And he's like, and it made so much more sense you know, how that character was written once I realized it was supposed to be Sam and they just changed all the Sams to Toby and didn't change, like, how he was reacting to things. Um, And so he went to, like, cried to Tommy and Tommy's like, don't worry, we're going to, it's going to be fixed. We're going to change it. And so they changed it. So, you know, like, I think that does nothing to negate anything that sort of either person said. And I think the main thing Sorkin's getting wrong here is misunderstanding what is punching up and what is punching down. Um, and this is Making something it that, personal. Yeah. Right? You know, yeah. and this, this is something that I think about a lot. Forgive me for referencing uh, lost once again, but it is no, the no. Show that I am like most intently <laughs> studying. And like something that I think is so interesting is that when lost one in its first season, which it did for writing and for best drama series, stuff like that, JJ Abrams, who, you know, we talked about Felicity forever and alias, like was already an established guy when in made a mission impossible movie. He let Damon Lindelof give most of the speech there because he's like, not just because Damon deserves it for all the work that he did, but because he's like, well, he's a new guy and he should have some, a spot here. You know what I mean? And so then when Damon won for Watchmen, he let his writer Cord Jefferson give most of the speech. You know, and I just think that that's like the gracious sort of yeah. showrunner thing to do for a writer on your script. And and Sorkin, for all of his myriad of talents, is not maybe the most gracious person we've ever met. You know, you know the, the, the funny thing too, as you were saying that, I, I can't help but think about, you know, someone who also is somewhat notorious, Matt Weiner. And right, he let right. every single one of his assistants co-write the finale of every season of that show and when inevitably it won Emmys he let them talk too I mean it, it, t- despite the fact that that I hear is a contentious writing environment in its own right as we Absolutely. all know so I, I couldn't agree with you more in terms of um, being gracious I, w- I would also say too to, to rewind to the Richard Schiff component, um, which I do think is is very interesting. Um, the nature of the way the West Wing was written, they would be getting scenes like 
moments before shooting them. I mean, mm. this was how close they were. They, I mean, they so infrequently ever got a full draft of a script. Um, so, so I assume that what happens in this situation, right, is that things are getting to actors before they should be getting to actors, right? right. So they're reading stuff at various stages of, of the development of a script, which does no one any favors, right? It sends the actors spinning because they're just like, what is this? It, it, all of it, it's just, it's just not good. It, and, and it's, the, and by the way, I've been on shows where, you know, we slip scripts in various stages to people within production so they can be preparing and right. figuring out how to produce the episode. And then inevitably that gets to an actor or mm. through makeup or through any number of departments. And it's just how it is. Um, it's the nature of, of making television, but uh, it can create drama unnecessarily, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's really interesting that, that I know that Richard Schiff is very passionate about Toby Ziegler. Um, and, and that, that it was, um, I can understand that being a, um, an emotional experience for him, especially an episode that ultimately ended up being one of the biggest Toby episodes of the run. Yeah. Ever. Uh, yeah. Is, is, is really, is really, uh, it's understandable. And I mean, and he articulated that he was like, I was forever fighting them. You know, he wasn't like, this was the one case where I got emotional. He was like, I was forever doing that, but this <laughs> yeah. was like, you know, but, um, and another factor and I, and I don't know the timeline mm-hmm. of this, but the DC scenes, and you may have already talked about this, but the DC scenes, I guess they filmed like they went to DC like three or four times a year and batch mm-hmm. filmed. So that yeah. might've been part of it that they were like batch filming the, the part where they're in the Arlington or something like that. And a hundred percent. I'm sure that that definitely has, um, has a part of it as well. I mean, it's, you know, this show went to DC. This was a different time, right? This was a show when, this was at a time when John Wells was sending people to, for ER to Chicago, like, you know, weekly. And just, I mean, it was, it was just, it was different then. Um, So, but, but yeah, when you're doing stuff like that, uh, you're painting yourself into corners and making sure that things have to be certain ways within the script. That's that's not a great thing either. But um, all of this is to say that even with all of this, yes. what comes out of it is an incredible episode of television, which I guess kind of proves that it doesn't matter. Like ultimately all of this drama, all of these things, and on, on the other side of it, you still make a great episode of TV, then I guess ultimately, you know, Sorkin's not wrong necessarily in terms of the methods of his madness, but it's 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 still not um, the best creative environment. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't envy you having. Well, some days I do, and some days I don't. But yeah. ha- having worked in writers' rooms, it's just so tough. Like I've heard some of the like most successful TV people still hold grudges from their early days in writer's room when they're like, so-and-so is such a credit hog. You know what I mean? I'm like, you have the world now and you're still mad about this yeah, episode of this yeah. television show that no one cares about. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. I'm held onto it. So, you know. I think that, um, and I can only speak for myself, although I, I do think this does apply to a fair amount of writers. You are, um, a writer's room is such a raw space um, it's such a uh, performative space to a certain degree, but it's also, you're really putting yourself out there um, if you want to do it well. I mean, I, I think that there are people that can be guarded and can just sort of see it as a punch-in, punch-out type of job. But if you want it to actually matter to you, 
you got to kind of stick your neck out, right? And you got to put some skin in the game. And I think that some people can take advantage of that. Some people can um, can maybe not be as uh, as aware of just how much of yourself is on the page. And uh, when that happens and you get smacked around emotionally, uh, it's going to leave scars. <laughs> like, I think yeah. it's going gonna, it's gonna to stick around. When you write a script about your dad, who you must have had like a tough <laughs> right. relationship with, and Aaron Sorkin's yeah. like, I wrote that. You know, it's like, that's tough. It's really fucking yeah, tough. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Um, so this episode is also, this is the Christmas episode. Um, mm-hmm. So I... I, I'd like. I'd love to get your thoughts on Christmas episodes. I mean, I feel like this was a hallmark of a different time in television. Mm-hmm. We don't see many holiday themed episodes as much no. um, because uh, we don't have to make twenty two or twenty four episodes of things anymore. Yeah. Uh, plus, things just don't air on a cycle like they used to. So it's just these. You know, we don't have these sweeps times when you want to be hitting uh, people's holiday sweet spots. Um, what are your thoughts on the Christmas episode? What are your thoughts on on, ep- on holiday-themed episodes of television? Um, you know, they can be great. They can be some of my favorites. Yes. Um, absolutely. And there was... Um, I, I watched this episode a couple times because that's the kind of obsessive person that I am. And like, <laughs> uh, there was one point when I was just sort of background watching it and I could just, you could just hear the like angelic choir singing in the background of dialogue. You know what I mean? I'm like... We don't make enough Christmas episodes anymore, you know. And this is something yeah. that the you know the Brits do, right? They have their like Christmas yeah. specials that they do for shows, and and Americans have started to kind of do that sometimes. Netflix shows, especially, I think, will just pop off a, a a Christmas special, and those are really fun. But it's also kind of jarring. Like I was actually just watching screeners for um, Never Have I Ever, uh, the second season for yeah. Netflix, and there's an episode where there's just like a Christmas tree in the background, maybe for two. And I'm like, this is going to air during the summer. Like that's just, it's just kind of odd. You know what I mean? And I think it's because, yeah, you don't know, you know, they don't have a Christmas episode, but they have, they were like, we're going to say it's Christmas now. And I'm like, (laughs) in the summer, like, what is, what is that going to read? Like, so I think to your point, like just the schedules are so, so odd. So yeah, I I do miss those. And I hadn't thought about them as a trapping of like a 22 episode season sort of thing. Um, Yeah. Do you have a favorite Christmas episode of a TV show? You know, it's, it's, it's probably Noel, which is the the second season Christmas episode of this show, mm. uh, which is the the Yo Yo Ma PTSD Josh Lyman episode where he, so good. which is which is tremendous. I mean, I would also say too, uh, there's a Christmas episode in season four where Toby is dealing with his father and learning about. Uh, um, Murder Incorporated and his father's involvement in in sort of the Jewish mafia, uh, which is a tremendous episode, which also takes place at, at Christmas. Uh, you know, it, it's um, I think this show possibly does Christmas better than any other show because it can kind of really lay lean into the musicality of it, the Christmas lights. The show is so kind of warm and angelic in the way that it's shot with, you know, the Robert Richardson hot lighting from above and mm-hmm. Christmas lights and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, it really kind of uh, accentuates all of that in the in the best possible way. And we'll, we'll talk about sort of, this is the first time they go there, but the cross-cutting and the music and the way that this episode crescendos is, is, is very musical. Um, and they really lean into that deeper into series but um yeah i mean i I, i'm a big fan of 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 er as well they did some great christmas episodes on that show too um yeah i don't know i i yeah it's go ahead 
Oh, no. Uh, I was going to say, because I'm a ride or die Buffy Vampire Slayer fan, even mm-hmm. despite the Joss Whedon of it all, there's an episode <laughs> in season three called Amends, uh, which is a Christmas episode where, where it snows in Sunnydale. And uh, and it's the reason why David Boreanaz got a spinoff, like th- that episode. And so I think about that episode a lot in terms of like what that does really well for for doing a Christmas show. And can I tell, okay, I'm going to tell a dumb personal anecdote really quickly, well, yes. which is that when I was in high school, my high school chorus was sent to the White House to sing Christmas carols at the White House. And uh, so I got to be a very small part of like the, the holiday pageantry <laughs> at the White House. And I think it is such a spectacle that it that it merits its own, you know, the way they gussy up, you know, when it's not Melania Trump, the way they gussy up the <laughs> White House and like, you know, sorry, it's not, that's sexist to put on the first lady. It's definitely not just her. That was, It's not just her, but, but still. Like, but uh, but those era, trees, Melania yeah. felt like those trees were very much in her vein for what mm, that's worth for whatever that means yeah exactly no i and it's you know it's it's i agree with you um and and quite frankly it's kind of mandy's whole storyline in this episode which is trying to sort of make a make a a thing out of christmas um it it it's you know it's it's a really interesting time and i think that of year uh, and i think that this show finds a way to balance the melancholy of this time of year, which it can be a very sad time for a lot of people. Uh, and it can be a, a wonderful time, a time filled with joy and family and friends. And and um, I think that this show finds that balance, this episode in particular, but I also just think in general of um, of the warmth and also the, you know, the, the somewhat sadness that can exist within this, within this holiday. Um, well, so, I, the, the, yeah, go ahead, please. Sorry. Well, I, I think a good reason to not just do Christmas episodes is because we're trying to be more aware of like how not everyone celebrates Christmas and that, that sort of too. thing. <laughs> right. But, and, and I'm an atheist. So, for the record, like I don't have like a, a religious association with Christmas. But, you know, increasingly as the show goes on and is increasingly about President Bartlett as it was not initially mm-hmm. supposed to be, but it does, mm-hmm. he, his, religion his spirituality is so important to who that character is and Mm -hmm. even though you have characters like toby and josh who are jewish as far as i know they've mentioned Mm -hmm. that in the pilot right like that uh you know it still makes sense for this administration to have some big celebration for this holiday do you know i I absolutely agree I, i think that um you know the the, the Chrismica episode notoriously on the OC does a good job mm-hmm. of trying to be yes, as yes. Uh, somewhat inclusive. Everything for uh, everyone, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I do. I do think that uh, to your point, with such a religious president, um, it, it it does seem important. Um, it, it's the episode opens literally opens with Mandy walking CJ, Sam, Toby through the president sort of. Christmas press conference that he's going to do mm-hmm. and and sort of the as you said the gussied up white house and trying to make as much of a meal out of out of Christmas as possible um and then Ginger tells Toby that the DC police are on the phone for him and that sort of sets that storyline off and then a secret service agent calls CJ Flamingo right and that's kind of our our button out of the uh into the you know the, the west wing theme song and what have you which is interesting in the sense that that's in that cold open they kind of put all the plates in the air in terms of what the episode's going to be about um not as 
effectively as other episodes do. I feel like there are episodes where Sorkin just kind of lays it all out there before your credits where it's like, this is, these are our storylines and this is how it's going to go. This feels a little bit more loosey goosey than, than, uh, uh, than previous episodes. I want to sort of talk about the individual storylines, but um, yeah, let's just go with the Toby one first. Cause it feels like it's obviously the most significant, which is that essentially um, a homeless Korean war veteran named Walter Hofnagel is found dead on a park bench uh, in Toby's coat that he gave to Goodwill. And it had one of his business cards inside the coat pocket and they called him um, Lance Reddick is the police officer. Always wonderful. Lance Reddick, one of the best voices in, in the business, as far as I'm concerned. I'm like, why isn't Lance Reddick in more of the West Wing? Um, <laughs> exactly. Why isn't he just every cop on every scene? Um, <laughs> also hasn't aged at all. At all. Just, it's, yeah. Love him. He's, he's tremendous on the wire. He was wonderful on Fringe. Um, he's, uh, I'm he's sure on he's Lost. on stuff. Oh, right. He is on Lost as well, <laughs> yeah. of course. Uh, yeah, he's he's just a, a wonderful actor um, with just tremendous presence and and just uh, a, a, a stunning person that you just want to take notice of. Yeah. Um, and he's given five lines. But uh, he's very good in this episode, even if he's not in it particularly much. It's one of those things I always like reference the uh, the scene in Wayne's World where they get Charlton Heston to like play the gas station attendant. I'm like, that's what it feels like for Lance Reddick to roll up and play disaffected cop number three in a great episode of West Wing. You know, so. it's very true. Um, yeah, he he basically just he kind of like yeah, this guy died, and 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 Toby sees the tattoo, which he realizes means he was a in a specific unit um, of the uh military and the cop and lance just kind of shrugs and goes like okay like just it 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 uh, has absolutely no uh importance to this police officer uh, it's clear that this man's death is not a priority um and then essentially the kind of the beats of the story really are um he calls the va to try to get in touch with family or anybody the va is not helpful um and then he goes back to the to the cemetery in the hopes of i guess perhaps talking to people there and seeing if anybody knew him there's a guy there who's selling souvenirs or something to that effect who was also a veteran uh and knows that walter and his brother used to sleep under a uh I don't know, some sort of a freeway or something along right. those lines. Um, so Toby goes there, meets the brother. Um, what are our thoughts on the brother being mentally challenged? I'm not sure that we needed it. I don't know that it, I, it feels like it's just trying to dial up even more sentimentality, but I, I don't know what your thoughts are on it. I don't know what it adds, um, except yeah. adds to Toby's extreme, like, anxiety and discomfort in the scene yeah. and his and his like yeah. because i will say like the i i don't think i would do it as a choice <laughs> but i i think the moment i don't think it would be done today just to be clear either i think the moment where he's trying to explain to this other guy is acting as sort of like a go-between mm-hmm. um and he like doesn't want to say he's important but yeah. needs to say that like he's I important and he can yeah. like that moment is so good. And, and the part where he like gives away all his money and then like the guy has to give him like bus fare yeah. back, I guess Toby yeah. takes the bus. Um, Like it, it, uh, all of that works really well. I think you could have done it without needing, you know, you could have just had that actor. Who's Who's an actor that I recognize who's been in like a billion things playing this sort of go between. I think you could have right. just had him play the brother or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I guess it. I just, it, it's 
this show understandably has to explain a lot of stuff to the audience that um, a lot of shows don't, right? Like there's just a fair amount of civics and politics and things that this show, so, you know, as as they do so beautifully on the West Wing Weekly, call it, you know, Teladonna. Uh, Donna's continually used as a, as a sort of foil for that, right? To help us, Josh will explain to Donna something that Donna doesn't understand about politics, right? Um, which is, you know, sexist for sure. Um, well, but, I mean, you know. I don't know how much we're going to talk about Mandy because I'm sure you've already talked about Mandy plenty. Oh, no, like, please talk about Mandy. <laughs> well, I just, I you know, I was trying to like, get to the bottom. I, I'm sorry. Is Should we finish the Toby thing and then we talk about Mandy or what do you feel like? Yeah. I mean, let's, let's, let's uh, we'll, we'll just, we'll quickly yeah. get through this and then we'll come back to Mandy. Cause I do want to talk about Mandy and I obviously want to talk about CJ's storyline as well, which is a very important storyline to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, that, that the, uh, that Walter's brother, whose name is George, mm-hmm. which I, I don't know oh, if that's a, a, a mice, mice and man reference. reference. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, is is perhaps slow or however you want to call it, or I think that's how they call it in the episode, uh, is a way for Toby to have to explain things to the audience mm. about this military funeral. Perhaps that's why it's there. Um, Richard Schiff is beautiful in the scene and does a wonderful job of showing his... Um, the conflict that's going on inside him in this moment of what he knows he should or shouldn't do, how to wield his power under these circumstances, if that's even a thing he should do. Um, The way he, as you said, delivers the line, I'm a very important person. He can't even look him in the eye. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's beautifully acted. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if I'm not sure that I totally needed George to be. uh, uh, So long story short, um, we have a um, we have a moment where um, Mrs. Landingham tells Toby that Bartlett wants to talk to him, and they have a moment where Bartlett basically says, "Like you know, you you can't uh, you can't be doing this." Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just want to quote the line, Toby: "If we start pulling strings like this, every homeless veteran will come into the woodwork." To which Toby says, "I can only hope, sir." Um, and Bartlett just kind of puts his hand on his shoulder. It's a beautiful moment. Um, and again, it's, and I, 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 you know, for our listeners, I know that I beat this drum a lot, but the Toby Bartlett relationship is one of the best relationships on the show. Absolutely. And um, the way they call each other out on things, the, the, how much Toby pushes Bartlett out of his comfort zone. Um, it's a beautiful father-son type relationship that's that's very interesting. Well, and the way that Richard Schiff describes how he responds, like I feel like they just pulled that from Richard, right? Mm-hmm. That he's the one who's going to challenge and speak plainly when other actors might just say, thank you so much for this episode <laughs> yes. Yes. centered yes, around yes. me. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and yeah, and something I do love is like both Mrs. Landingham and um, President Bartlett call Toby mm-hmm. out for doing mm-hmm. this and then both are like ultimately supportive and it and it mm-hmm. and it speaks to that sort of no we probably can't do this for every single homeless veteran yeah. or every single you know whatever but like do one good thing 
do yep. it, do one good thing at least at the very yeah. least. And it still matters that you do that one good thing, even if you can't do it for everyone. And, um, and I really like I that. I love that Mrs. Landingham wants to go you know, yep. to get that, that great scene with her and Charlie. And, um, yeah. yeah, she so Catherine Justin, who plays Mrs. Landingham, um, you know, her character is killed off at the end of, of season two. Um, but uh, unbelievable. There's a scene essentially where Charlie says to Mrs. Landingham, you know. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. for lack of a better way of putting it, why are you so glum on Christmas? Um, and she delivers this monologue beautifully. She doesn't mm-hmm. overdo it. The sadness is palpable. The line that gets me every time is, um, essentially she tells uh, Charlie about how she had these twin boys. They did everything together. They enlisted together. They both had medical degrees or, or were studying to be doctors and they needed medics in, in Vietnam. Um, and so they enlisted together. Uh, and she says, they had to be so scared. It's hard not to think right then that they needed their mother. Anyway, I miss my boys. It's, it is just, it's a beautiful, beautiful scene yeah. um, that she delivers beautifully. And then it, it, it dovetails so nicely with the Toby storyline, and she she decides to go to um, the funeral of Walter um, in Arlington with Toby. Um, it's uh, it's 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 just a really powerful episode uh, by and large. Um, let's let's just sort of uh, let's dive into the other, <laughs> or not the other, but probably the most problematic storyline of this episode mm. is the Lori nonsense. Yes. Um, in the previous episode, we learned that uh, this Senator Lillian Field uh, has learned of Leo's addiction issues and Josh is convinced that, uh, that the Republicans are going to use it against them. So he asks Sam to go talk to Lori about any Republicans that might be clientele of either her or other call girls. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just to really underline how much I hate this storyline. Um, nothing against. Um, oh my God, I'm drawing a blank on the actress who plays Lori, Lisa Edelstein. Uh, Lisa Edelstein, who is a tremendous actor. Um, this storyline just makes everybody look dumb. Like everyone looks dumb. The only person who looks like they have any uh, spine or brain in in this storyline across this entire season is Lisa Edelstein and yeah. Lori. Yeah, um, which feels like an unintended consequence of their actions. Um, what are your thoughts on Lori? What are your thoughts on Josh and Sam going to try to you know use right. her for dirt? So this is a this is a th- plot thread from the pilot. 
right? Yep. Because that's where we meet her, Lisa Edelstein's yep. character. And um, I mean, at the very least, um, we have Don Spencer's like great dressing down of Sam and Josh yes. being like, you idiots. Like I knew this yeah. is what you would do. I told you not to do it. You did mm-hmm. it. Like you had them uh, tailed. Yeah, you had, had them, them tailed. <laughs> and he he says this thing where he's like, "This is not what we do," yeah. uh, or "This is not who we are." One of those, yeah. one version of that. And I think that that gets to the central, the way that I think about West Wing and, and its resurgence uh, during the Trump administration. Part of it had to do with um, Josh Malina and Rishi's great podcast, but also. I think the reason that rewatch is so popular during the Trump administration was this sort of like misty eyed nostalgia for something that never was, which is like, you know, make the white house um, empathetic again or whatever it is. And it's just sort of this idea, which is, you know, I, there are better than this. Right. Which is what we would all like to think. I don't know that I believe that of any administration, (laughs) even the administrations that I love, you know what I mean? Like politics is dirty no matter who is in the White House. So that line smacks of, that's the central thesis of the show. You're the good guys is what, is what Laurie says. You're supposed to be the good guys. Right. And I'm like, is anyone the good guy? Like in politics ultimately? No. And that, so, so West Wing to me always feels like aspirational, which is fine. There's something wrong with aspirational, Mm -hmm. but, um, I, I kind of laugh like a little bit dark. Maybe I've just seen too much at this point. That <laughs> like I laugh when they say something like, this is not who we are. And I'm like, eh. um, yeah. yeah and, and the character of Josh Lyman, who was my favorite character the first time I watched West Wing, every time I rewatch it, and this has nothing to do with Bradley Whitford, who is incredible. Like every time I rewatch it, I'm like, I don't know that this is a good guy that I like that much. You know what I mean? I I do, I do. I you know, it's funny you say that. Um, I, I've been rewatching Friends a little bit lately. Oh, yeah. Um, and there, there it is. You, yeah. it is. I remember Chandler was the character, right? Like back mm-hmm. then, he was the one everyone loved. Yeah. And now I watch it, I'm like, I don't like Chandler kind of at all. No. Um, now, it's not the same for me with Josh Lyman, but um, I do sent, Josh was the character everybody loved. He was the one with the quippy one-liners. He was, you know what I mean? Um, he's the one they shot for a reason. Like, it's all that kind of stuff. Um, but to your point, there's times where Josh is a, a lot more grating to me this time around um, or, or just Every now and then there'll be an episode where I'll be like, mm, mm. okay. But then you'll have like that really nice moment that he has with Donna in this episode, which is kind of sweet. It is sweet, but it's also like, I don't know. So this this does tell into me wanting to talk about Mandy. Because Please. so Please. they they cast Maura Kelly, the great Maura Kelly in this role. She didn't even have to audition, right? They were just sort of like, we want yeah. Maura Kelly for this, Mandy. And, and it's very clear immediately what they want here, which is a sort of like his girl Friday screwball sparring dynamic, right? Between Mandy and Josh. And yeah. ultimately that doesn't work. And I agree that it doesn't work. And what's interesting to me, I was trying to figure out, I was like, what has Moira Kelly said about this? And I can't find Moira Kelly talking a lot about this or at all. At all. At all. Aaron Sorkin always says, uh, uncharacteristically, perhaps, the politic thing, which is like, Moira Kelly was amazing and it's a failure of my writing that this character didn't work. And it and it's a failure of my writing that we never even explained where she went and she just, you know, let, vanished from the show. It's insane. They yeah. don't even, it's, it's crazy. After so, an assassination attempt. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, so, so, um, mm-hmm. thinking about Aaron Sorkin and his how he writes women, 
and 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 which is a which is a question that has become the more evident as we watch newsroom and studio 60 and stuff like that right um and it's something i think even sorkin himself has talked about um you know i just have to think that like mandy as this challenging figure which is a, a version of which they got better with mary louise parker but it's not moira kelly's fault i think that mandy does come off as grating as she does because she does because yeah. she played a similar character in the cutting edge and mm-hmm. she played it so beautifully and there was just enough vulnerability and humanity in with that like tough exterior yeah. that you love that character in that film and i'm like that's obviously why they cast her like that's you know they watched that film and they're like we want that for this yeah. and then they just didn't get it right and i think the only thing that sort of sticks in my craw again i love donna I love Donna. And and when I first watched West Wing, I loved Josh and Donna. But now that I watch it, I'm like, this feels a little like, she, as you say, she's like, she's a subordinate. She's a softer, subordinate figure. And the fact that they replace this sort of challenging, caustic figure with this softer, you know, blonde, subordinate figure, even though she sometimes challenges Josh, it's, a, it's from a much different position of power. It, that is tougher for me to handle in 2020. I, you're not alone. <laughs> um, I think that a lot of people, I think that the, the Josh and Donna relationship is uh, certainly trickier now than it was back then. Um, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I like to think it was a conscious decision not to have them actually hook up until they were on, on somewhat level playing field professionally. Um I I think that they have a really here's here's the thing on the like on the Mandy of it all just bef- before I get yeah. to the Josh and Donna thing the Mandy thing feels conceptually rocky and by that I mean her role her actual role within the administration uh, is not necessary like from from a writing perspective what ultimately happens is CJ starts to take over some of that kind of component of of optics which is makes sense. She's the press secretary. Um, you get, uh, you obviously get uh, Joey Lucas who comes in to talk about sort of, you know, public opinion and, th- and those sort of things. So you get to scratch or scratch that itch, check those boxes, whatever metaphor you want to use um, that Mandy serves. Like it becomes abundantly clear early on that she just doesn't make sense. Like her role doesn't make sense. I don't think that it's necessarily a reflection of, of, uh, of Moira well- Kelly. I don't know. I mean, we both agree that it's not a reflection of Moira Kelly and, and Aaron yes. Sorkin says so publicly as well. So like yes. everyone, yes. no one's knocking her, but yeah. like, I don't know that I agree. I will say this, what it doesn't fit into is this idea of a white house staffed entirely by true believers, right? These are all like true believers yes. in the Bartlett yes. mythos. And she never mm-hmm. was that she's yes. someone for hire and stuff like that. And she talks about wanting to go work for other people. And they're mm-hmm. like, you know, why would you ever do that? Like, because that they as true believers, like don't right. understand why she would do that. What I think might make sense, if you wanted to keep Moira Kellen, if you don't, that's fine. It's your show. But like, if you want to keep her, like have her go work for a Republican, have her be an yeah. oppositional character. You can keep her around, you know, like have her be someone who challenges the way that like Ainsley mm-hmm. comes in and is, yes. is yes. challenging. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, I think having more, the more challenge makes for more interesting. I don't disagree with show, that. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I do wonder if, um, I agree with everything you're saying. I, I think that uh, there's a part of me that feels like, 
first of all, I'm not sure that I ever felt any actual romantic chemistry between Bradley Whitford and Moira Kelly. No. Um, so I, I think that that unfortunately kind of, you know, her, her days were numbered to some degree on that front. Totally. Um, they felt like brother and sister more so than like exes. It, it just, it never, it just never really clicked. Um, I, I think that ultimately the Mandy thing is, a, there's a bunch of factors that ultimately lead to, to Mandy going to Mandyville and no one ever knowing where that is or what happened. Right. Um, but I, I, I don't disagree with you that the subservient component to the Donna, the Josh and Donna relationship is one that's a problematic and B, um, a sign of the times, a sign of 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 something that was perhaps more palatable to an audience uh, back in uh, in the late '90s and early 2000s. Um, that's not okay, um, but it also doesn't change the fact that you know when Donna says, "I wouldn't have stopped for red lights," my my heart flutters and I get goosebumps, and I love the two of them together, like on oh, some no. level. I mean, that's a great scene. That's a great scene. <laughs> So yeah. I, 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 and, and the look on Janelle Maloney's face when she finds out that Josh has been shot at the top of season two is tremendous. Like this, this also goes to the other quote unquote problematic relationship, which is the Danny and CJ relationship, right? Sure. Which is a character, a man who will not take no for an answer, who is just pestering the hell. Now, this isn't to say that CJ isn't kind of, you know, pushing him away with one arm and, and kind of pulling him closer with it. Like there's a little bit of a wink and nod that's going on a little bit with the character and that's not but it doesn't change the fact that Danny should know better and this is a professional situation and he shouldn't be doing what he's doing but Allison Janney and and Timothy Busfield sell you on it <laughs> the goldfish scene, like the right? it, like if you ask me like the two the top two like romantic moments it's <laughs> it's I wouldn't stop for red lights and it's the goldfish like I do I loved I loved <laughs> Danny Kincannon and I love right. Timothy Busfield and I agree with you. I think maybe what would have helped it is if Danny did take no for an answer and then yeah. CJ changed her mind. Just have give right. me like two episodes right. where he's like, okay, you drew a line, I'll respect it. And then she changes her mind and then we still get the relationship. You know what I mean? Just, just to let me know that he heard her. And I think the m- more troubling thing, and I watched, because it was so funny, I, I sat down to watch this episode you know me. And I was like, well, no, I should watch the pilot. So I watched the pilot. And then I sat down to watch the episode and it was like previously on and the goldfish scene. I was like, no, I need to see the goldfish scene. So I watched that episode, which came before. And then I watched a couple after it and I'm like, okay. And then I rewatched them. So I was like, now I have all the context I need, but yeah, like, yeah. um, and the goldfish scene is so good, but, um, but it's still problematic that he gets that goldfish information from like a business conversation with Josh, you know, like a work conversation yeah. anyway. Uh, like the Josh is trading info about CJ for like something yeah. else that he needs. Um, what bothers me in, in this episode, and once again, I actually love Danny and CJ, but what bothers me in this episode is CJ is entirely right about this hate crime thing. And she is told by both Leo and Danny that she's wrong. Yep. yep. In, a kind of condescending, no, not kind of condescending way. Absolutely condescending. And way. and Danny is the worst because he's like, and what's more, you agree with me. And I was like, what the fuck? That's like, classic enti- Sorkin, right there. Yeah, and she's entirely right. And what what mollified me a little is a couple episodes later, uh, Bartlett is signing a hate crime bill or something like that. Mm-hmm. So like, but we never yes. see that conversation turn internally. It's just all of no. a sudden like, CJ is like attitude is the one that's adopted but watching this episode i was like what do you mean 
it's incorrect to classify something as a hate crime. And that's, that's what prompted me to, I think, I think you saw the tweet that I put out where I was just sort of like a liberal administration, like now arguing against a hate crime bill or something like that. It's just the wildest thing you could think of. Absolutely insane. I mean, that, that, you know, there's two things about the the CJ stuff in this episode. The first is on the Danny side. One of the things that also bumped me is that Leo walks into a conversation between Danny and CJ. Danny leaves. CJ immediately says, I'm rebuffing him. And Leo says, I don't give a shit. Like, I don't care. That's what then leads to her saying yes to going to dinner with him. It's like she needed the, not the okay from Leo, but the acknowledgement that like, it doesn't matter and that it's okay to, to date him under those circumstances. And then she's later punished by right. Toby in right. a later episode for doing Correct. so. You know what I mean? So like, it's, it doesn't it's a matter. Mess. On the, on the hate crime thing, just for, for context, there's yeah. a kid named um, Lowell Lydell, who similar to Matthew Shepard um, was um, tied up and beaten and, and, and ultimately dies. Um, and CJ is understandably upset about this. And, uh, in a press conference, sort of, I don't know, hints that this administration has a problem with that. Like, I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it's not insane. No. But she walks out of the press conference and is smacked down by Sam, who says, maybe, maybe don't hit the gas so hard on hate crimes. And she barely did. Um, and then Leo says, you know, A, like, pull back, pull back. I mean, it's it's crazy to think yes. that there was ever a time that a, that a liberal administration would be like, I don't know about hate crimes. I mean, right. it's just, um, but and but I mean, then I the mean, other, yeah. Of course, of course, it's not. It's not wild. To, we know that that was the case. You know, we yeah. know that like our progressive needle has moved at least in discourse, if mm-hmm. not uh, in policy, like in the intervening years. So we know that. Yeah. But like, even then, even in '99, I was just yep. like, I. You know, anyway, sorry, go ahead. It's, it's, no, it's, 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 it's an interest. First of all, this is a, a C story, probably. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's not even really given the weight that it should. Now, admittedly, this episode, you know, these are two pretty big episodes, big storylines. The Toby storyline and the, and the CJ storyline are, are dealing with, you know, big issues in terms of veterans, in terms of hate crimes. These aren't small issues. Um, but it, it's, it is interesting that baked into it is this idea of, you know, we can't make laws about people's thoughts. Uh, you know, it's a slippery slope. It's like, well, but if your thoughts are filled with hate, I'm kind of on board with yeah. us being like, well, I mean. Anyway. If it's prejudicial, if it's motivated yeah. by race or, or gender or sex or whatever it is, like, yeah. yeah, listening to Leo say you can't police people's thoughts, I was like, that's a Republican talking point. Like, that's yep. what it sounded like to me. So, yeah. It is it is interesting. I mean, I, I do think that, and and for what it's worth, I do think that one of sort of the bearing walls of of this show is a lot of, Bartlett grappling with his uh, his liberalism um, and grappling with um, taking risks and and legacy and and the various things that I assume weigh heavy on you know certainly democratic presidents. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it is interesting that in the previous episode, which is the Supreme Court justice, you know the picking Mendoza and all that sort of stuff, that that. One of the hallmarks of this show in a weird way, this first season of this show, is them trying to figure out where they stand on the political spectrum. Um, 
I think that's interesting. Um, I don't know that it's handled adroitly in this particular episode, but I do think it's an interesting notion that they do grapple with. I think I needed just one person other than CJ to (laughs) tell CJ that she was right. You know what I mean? I would have preferred if Danny had been like, yeah, you're right. Let's talk about it over dinner or something like that (laughs) rather than, no, let's have dinner so I can tell you how wrong you are until you agree with me. Um, It's very strange that that's the way the conversation is couched too. I mean, she asks him... You know, for for our listeners, CJ asks to, uh, asks Danny how he feels about this, hoping that he's going to just agree with her and immediately disagrees with her. And then she says, "Okay, but take me to dinner and convince me why why you're right." And it's just like, no, mm. no, no. Yeah, um, it's no. It's great. I, I I was really glad that I watched that previous episode, not just for the goldfish scene, but also when yeah, Bartlett gets dressed down for being too centrist. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, some someone in my Twitter mentions, uh, and I don't know how true this is, but um, said that like he felt like the first season they were trying to make Bartlett a centrist. And once they realized that like only liberals were really watching the show and they're like, well, let's just, let's just make him, uh, let's lead him left. So yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's funny. I didn't, I didn't really think about that, which is that, you know, if you're NBC, you don't want this show to be politically alienating, right? You want this show to be as much of a big tent as it possibly can be. Right. Mm. Um, And I mean, it's also laughable to think that only liberals are watching this and 15 million people are watching it every week. So it's like, anyway. Yeah. Um, but but I do think that um, that is something that I, I, I guess I never really gave much credence to or, or thought about, which is, um, yeah, you want this show to be as, as centered as possible. I mean, it still got dinged by the Republicans every week. I'm sure I'm they sure. still watched it. Um, but it's, it is interesting. Um, and then, you know, you get Ainsley Hayes coming in. To, to- well, yeah, and I love Ainsley as a character. And I was reading a quote from Aaron Sorkin, basically when I was researching the Mandy thing, where he talked about his m- major regret yes. over not making Ainsley a series regular. And I think the yep. show, once again, would have been stronger if she had been. But um, yep. that... Yeah, like the in the pilot, you know, you've got this religious right, but you've got this one reasonable figure on the religious right who they're like, we don't have a problem with Christians. We have a problem, you know, like we need to write in this character to make sure that, you know, we 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 see most of them as reasonable, but here's the fringe that we're disavowing, which is true, but it's also like, you know, it it felt very like let's bowl this down the middle a little bit more than we might. So, yeah, which, and and if if I'm being honest, I kind of forgot that they do pass the hate crimes legislation. Um, which can, spoilers for an uh, episode yeah, coming up? Sorry, <laughs> no, no, no. I only say that um, because when CJ goes to Leo at the end of the episode and says to him, "You know, this is important. This is important." He says, "You're right. You're right. Let's deal with it after the break." I was like. The West Wing does from time to time punt things totally. and makes it and and sort of says like yeah yeah yeah, yeah you're you're totally right we'll get to that and then they just never do right. um, so I couldn't remember if the hate crimes thing actually did come back so it is it is that's that's good that 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 happened um, I I also feel like um, the the Danny Kincannon CJ stuff does feel like they're treading water a little bit. Like it doesn't feel like it's really, I mean, at the end of this episode, she says yes to going to dinner. So I guess that is progress, but it does feel like you do spend a fair amount of time with Danny just pestering her. But anyway, <laughs> um, it is what it is. At um, work, at their at respective work. jobs. Yes. 
Yes. Um, so at the end of the episode, we see um, what what ultimately becomes a, a, a somewhat classic West Wing motif, which is the cross-cutting between various things to music. Um, and it's usually a, a choir singing at, at, the, at, the, at the West Wing. Uh, but uh, you have these, you have a, a choir of, it, it seems like high schoolers or something like that, or they, they look relatively young anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, they're singing and it's cross-cutting with the funeral. Um, the, the, the funeral stuff is really well done. Uh, I think, I mean, they, they went to Arlington. It looks great. Uh, the, the the only thing that, that did make me sort of go like, oh, broadcast television, is the profiles of our supporting cast bathed in Christmas lights as they all enter frame. Like, it, it looked like a poster shot. Like, it, it was just a little too Avengers superhero-y of like, <laughs> we're, it, it just, but... Um, I mean, listen. There's a small, a small note, but uh, it, it just felt. I don't know what your thoughts were on that. I mean, West Wing is a sentimental show. That's just correct. You know, you gotta you gotta come with it ready for the gooeyness <laughs> that is West Wing, and it's not. Yeah. It's not the thing that I did love about mm. that uh, Arlington uh, aspect was the wincing, like the wincing at the gunfire. I thought it was yeah. really good, really yeah. interesting choice. Yeah. And I just want to, I mean, Richard Schiff wins an Emmy for this. And I he just does. want to shout out his performance throughout. I think this, this it's the only Emmy he won. Um, I don't think it's for the, the show, only yeah. Emmy he deserves. It's the only Emmy he has. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it's the only Emmy he deserves. But And I do think that they just continue to really develop that Bartlett-Toby um, relationship in a way that is just really strong stuff. But I've always thought about the way that Richard Schiff just says, yeah, yeah. Every time Toby says yeah, and it's imbued yeah. with all this like weariness, and there's so much like internal um, stuff. And there's and and you know we we talk about Sorkin is a great writer, and he is. And there's so much like there's patter, there's there's just beautiful, beautiful dialogue. But also there's a ton of people just saying okay, and that okay being imbued. Yes. Like Charlie just says okay after Mrs. Landingham tells him the story, yeah. and it just has to be imbued with a lot of extra stuff by this mm -hmm. great cast um, in order for that to feel like a reasonable response to, you know, delay Hill is, totally. is great and awkward and all the stuff in that moment as, as most humans would be, you know? So I think I also just want to highlight um, Alex Graves for a second, who has obviously gone on to have a, uh, uh, an illustrious career. Um, but he, you know, he does a couple episodes, just three episodes of Ally McBeal in 1999. Uh, he does uh, some Sports Night in 99. Obviously, he does um, this show in 99 as well. He does a couple episodes of The Practice. I mean, he's he's working yes. in 99. Um, but, and The West Wing does become, um, you know, a staple of his. He does 34 episodes, I believe, of uh, The a West time. Wing over the yeah. course of its run, um, which is obviously no small feat. Um, he obviously directed many episodes of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, somewhat problematically. Like, he directed one of my favorite episodes, which is Kissed by Fire, but then he is, like, he, I just don't think Alex Graves should give interviews. That's what I think. He is, <laughs> he tends to stick his foot in it whenever he talks about the show, but uh, he has, he's done some bad work and some great work on Game of Thrones. So. I, I mean, I think that, um, yes, I, Clearly not going to disagree with uh, with you about anything Game of Thrones oriented, but I'll just say that I do think he is, um, I mean, he did the pilot of Fringe, which I think is a great pilot. Mm -hmm. He's a very, um, he's, he's a, a very visual, very cinematic 
television director. And um, I think that it's it's interesting to see how he sort of, this feels like, this show in particular feels like a big part of. Oh yeah. I mean, he's directed a ton of episodes and like, I love when directors have those long relationships with the show, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Because directors can be journeymen sort Mm -hmm. of on, on shows. And, and when you develop a long relationship, you develop a shorthand. Um, And, and as you said, you said, this is the first time that they do that cross cutting at the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. I mean, as you Mm -hmm. say, that becomes a staple and that, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. So like, you know, I don't want to take away, um, from that. It was just funny when I saw Alex's name, I was like, oh, <laughs> it's an Alex Graves joint. Oh my God. But um, like, can I just give an example? He is responsible Please. for one of my favorite shots of Game of Thrones, which is Jamie and Brienne in the in the bathtub in season mm-hmm. three, Kiss by Fire. Excellent episode all the way through. Great, great scene. Top scene of Game of Thrones for me. Love it. And then he gave an interview where he's like, yeah, you've got a lesbian and a knight in a bathtub and they don't know. If, and I'm like, she's not She's not a list. Wait, what's happening? And I was like, why? Just don't talk about it. You do great work. Just don't talk about it. You know what I mean? Like, don't. It, it's a perfect example of the line that Leo says, which is uh, you, there's there's two things you don't want to see, how they're made taxes, uh, laws and sausages. I think you also don't want to know sometimes about how your favorite scenes are made. Right. Just just watch them for what they are. Yeah. It's like don't meet your idols. But I, I think that uh, it, it's... Um, it's interesting that Aaron Sorkin actually highlighted that uh, the cross cutting at the end of this episode, which is that he it was not his he didn't want to do that, and it was mm. Alex's idea to do it. Uh, ultimately, obviously, becomes a hallmark of the show. But um, it's just interesting how perhaps reticent <laughs> Aaron Sorkin is to things that he doesn't see a specific way, um, but that yeah. he can be changed, he can be turned, and he can become a fan. And because we started with, with I think, some earned criticism of mm-hmm. Aaron Sorkin at the top of this episode, I want to say that, like, I have questions about Aaron Sorkin as a director, but as a writer, yeah. you know, he's responsible for some of my very, like, I think The Social Network is one of my yeah. favorite films of all time. Yeah. American President is also a, a film I really love. A Few Good Men I really love, mm-hmm. you know, like, I've never Moneyball. seen it on the stage, Moneyball, you know, so, like, um a Sorkin script is something that I'm going to be excited about. Yeah. Um, anytime. Uh, for all my critiques of the newsroom or whatever, you know what I mean? It's just sort of like, mm-hmm. I. it doesn't change the fact that I'm excited to hear what Sorkin has put down on a piece sure. of paper. Sure. So. I, I want to just, uh, because you brought it up, I think it's worth saying, um, you know, when it comes to the, the way he directs his scripts, I bring it up just because, you know, we're talking about Alex Graves, we're talking about directors interpreting Aaron's words and and the power of them. Um, I feel like one of his biggest issues as a director is not understanding the modulation of his words. He feels like everything he writes is important. (laughs) It's a diamond (laughs) and it needs to be at 11. And the problem is you become numb to it very quickly, right? Like if you're not highlighting things, if you're not making, you know, understanding this is a thing to hit and this is a thing to throw away and this is, it it, it just, it be, it becomes sort of a, 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 a numbing experience. I, I think about That's Chicago 7 okay. and I, I, I think that he's a really wonderful writer, mm-hmm. but like every scene in that movie felt like the most important scene. And it's just like, it can't be. And then at a certain point, I'm just like, well, now it 
it's all rendered kind of, I don't want to say meaningless, but it's just, it doesn't, like, it doesn't have the power. Inert, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's so fascinating. I had never thought of it that way, but I think that's really, really accurate. And um, it's sort of the whole, like, it. Uh, it's like when you watch certain authors who've, who've, earned success and so then their editors stop editing them so much right. you know what i mean and it's just right. sort of like no no you know and you watch you watch the length of their books increase and the and the quality of the writing decreases because you know as good of a writer as you may be you need an editor and if and if sorkin just doesn't have the what writer does have the perspective <laughs> and wherewithal to murder their darlings you know what i mean that's the hardest thing I mean, you it's can the hardest do. Thing to do for it's sure. the hardest thing to do so yeah i i think that it's i i i thought it was worth just noting that the directors of the West Wing, listen, Tommy Schlamy's there. There's any number of people there in order to make sure that, as you know, directors on television shows are guns for hire. The, the showrunner and the writer is far more sort of the creative vision. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's an understanding of, of, of when to lean into it and when to throw it away. Yeah. And, uh, and that's just a really, really important part of, 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 directing and of adaptation. But um, so as we wrap up, I've been asking all of my guests for a couple of their favorite episodes of the West Wing. Do you have some favorites? Yeah, but I have to like pull up what their titles are. <laughs> Is that okay? Can you give me a Absolutely. I'm not, okay. I, mean, I have nowhere to be. <laughs> um, that's like, it's so funny. I was just thinking about like how, um, I'm going to write some down. <laughs> um, <laughs> how when I study a show, like when I do a show in depth for a podcast, like the fact that I know um, like all the lost episode titles now, like all of them, because, you know, you just like study yeah, of course. them. Yeah, of course. Um, this uh, was the first show. I mean, I guess it wasn't the first show. ER was the first show that I noticed titles because they would actually put the title up on the on the screen before the episode. Um that was when I started to actually think to myself, huh, there's a title to these things and maybe that title means something. And now I'm sort of obsessed with what, what it, your cat's amazing. By I'm the way. so sorry. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, I do think it's interesting. Sorkin is, is, is a prime example of someone who clearly puts a lot of thought into why he titles his episodes. What he does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and sometimes they try to be like really clever, like too clever by half. You know what I mean? What, <laughs> what, I, what sort of titling did you do on your show? Uh, you know, it's funny. John Wells, I heard from writers, has always said that there's two things that will not be discussed in a writer's room, which is character names or titles of episodes, because people will just waste a fuck ton of time debating <laughs> things that don't ultimately matter all that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so titles tended to just be put on the writer to just title whatever they wanted, um, ultimately. Um with Sleepy, it was very much that way. Uh, on Station 19, there was a little bit of like, you, sometimes you had to sell the showrunner on, on your title. Mm. Um, but I, 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 you know, I was pretty lucky that all my episodes got titled what I wanted to title them. So, <laughs> um, What is your favorite episode title that you came up with? Oh, boy. Um, probably The Dark Knight, which was about a blackout. I just, I appreciated the, the stupid yeah, punnery of it. I like um, it. But that's just, that's just me. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that doesn't, I mean, Joss also makes, uh, Buffy had a lot of witty titles too, right? Or were they all relatively simpler? 
It depends. It really depends. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, I mean, like stuff like the body or, sure, um, sure. you know, the prom uh, passion, um, <laughs> beginnings. Posh. Usually, yeah, it's like passions, beginnings, right? Uh, innocent, like all that sort of stuff. Like those are the iconic episodes, which is pretty funny. I feel like Lost is somewhere in between that. I feel like Lost has some really great titles and then some that are just like the constant. Oh my God, there's one that's just called Egg Town and no one can tell me why. Like no one, not even like, not even Damon can tell me why it's called that. Um, do you mm-hmm. remember the episode? I'm trying to, like the wiki's yeah, not please. Yeah, just, where, yeah. where Christian Slater is in it, where they're trying to like. He had a whole arc. He had a whole arc. The four, four. Oh, so, but the first yeah. one where like Donna meets him on the street and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, she first meets him on election day That's because she I mean. asked. That, yeah, that it's called election day. Election day. Great. Thank you. <laughs> and then last one was the one where with the chess sets. Oh, uh, Hartfield's Landing. Okay. <laughs> a preview into possibly Joanna's choices for favorite episodes. I mean. <laughs> they're not going to be wildly original because this is not no, a show I'm... that I've gone like five layers deep on, but yeah. Okay, I'm ready. All right, let's do it. What's the, There doesn't need to be a, you know, there's no number one here. You can just pick some that, that you know, stayed with you. Okay, I'm going to be a basic bitch and say two cathedrals. Fanta- I mean, basic about it. it's, great. How, it's great. How can I not, right? Yeah. Um, election Day, which as we mm-hmm. discussed off mic is Christian Slater's first appearance, but it's a, it's just an episode I like because it's very propulsive. It's a very propulsive episode, yeah, and I kind of like that sort of stuff. Um, Hartfield's Landing, which uh, is all the chess sets in it, and then uh, Ass Kicked by a Girl, which is uh, an Ainsley Hayes uh, episode that is just that's like, a, that's amazing. Yeah, I She's, really love Ainsley a lot. Ainsley Hayes was. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's understandable that that's one of Aaron Sorkin's biggest regrets, and I and I understand the circumstances being what they were. Um, you know, it, they were going into season three, and I'm assuming she had lots of offers. I mean, obviously, she went on to 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 star on CSI Miami, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm assuming he was given an ultimatum and said, like, should her get off the pod, make her a series regular, or she's going yeah. somewhere else. Um, I think, yeah, and he said, like, he was like, I wasn't sure I could figure out a way for her to be in, like, every episode. So I was hesitant to make her a series regular. And he was like, obviously, that was idiotic. <laughs> I should have just made her regular, but maybe not in every episode. Yeah. And obviously, CSI snapped her up, you know. And yep. it's like, you know, what what would have... I mean, like, that's the only romantic foil for Sam that ever really works. Totally agree. Uh, and I just love her as much as, like, I don't like Republicans. I like her as... <laughs> You know, a, a debate, like a reasonable debate. Like that's that's yes, yes. the best that the West Wing can be where it's not, it's, yeah. it shouldn't just be President Bartlett dressing people down with his superior knowledge. That's its own thing. That's like Julia Sugarbaker on Designing Women. I love that shit. But <laughs> like, you know, what's most interesting is when it's two opposing point of views and and you, you knock it out. Mary Lee Sparker well, does some I mean, great stuff around that too. You know what I mean? So For sure. I mean, yeah. I, I think that, you know, the the Sam and, uh, and Ainsley debates, if you will, um, are what we all wish was the political discourse now, right? I mean, it's it's not as though, you know, the problem now is that you out of hand disregard what the Republicans have to say because they're completely out of their minds and they're a lost party. But at the time, it did feel like there was healthy debate and, and, a, and a compromise that could be found conceivably between these two sides. 
uh, we're obviously not there anymore. Yeah, and, may- but, and you know. maybe that's naive. Like, because I don't know how old you were in 99, but I was a teenager. I was 19. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, maybe that's that's a naive memory that we have of the late 90s, early aughts. Um, maybe not. I mean, certainly things are worse now. But, like, <laughs> there's that's the whole thing about the West Wing is that it's aspirational. You know what I mean? So it's yep. like, why yep. not see an idealized version mm-hmm. of of, you know, a world in which we can just talk these things out? And if we disagree, it's not because one person has no empathy. <laughs> the other person <laughs> does, which is what it feels like more and more these days. Do you know? Yeah, it's, it is it is interesting to think about. It's also interesting to think about, um, quite honestly, uh, just a Republican series regular on the show. I mean, I understand where where Aaron was possibly coming from in the sense that, you know, she was, uh, you know, a, a lawyer uh, within the, the West Wing. So, you know, how many storylines could she get pulled into and, and what have you? Um, and being sort of forced into that, uh, <laughs> quite frankly, forced into showing both sides, showing the Republican side as well right. as... The Democrat side every week might have been a challenge, uh, one that he should have obviously stepped up to. But I understand why he might have thought it, it, it was it was not uh, worthwhile at the time. But uh, but I'll also just say, you know, there are other Republicans that show up on the show. I, you know, I think that that you know Alan Alda's character, I think they do a great job of of building him in a way that feels genuine and intelligent and and um, uh, you know the, the best kind of Republican you can ask for. Right. Um, same with um, uh, Bruno Ginelli, uh, played by Ron Silver, who shows up and he's. Uh, uh, you know he's great. Uh, yeah, I mean it, it, it's it's it, it it's a great show. All great episodes. Hartfield's ending was the episode that uh, you know, they recorded recently for HBO Max that they did a, a, right, a, right, sta- a staging of, of yeah. the live reading, which or the the live staging with um, um, Sterling K. Brown standing in for for John Spencer. I mean, it was beautifully photographed by by Tommy Shlami, and and uh, it's a wonderful episode. Um, it's a great Toby. Uh, Bartlett episode with them playing exactly. chess and and it's it's wonderful. I mean, when you when when I don't think you get Hartfield's Landing if you don't have this episode in Chelsea's Deo and you don't have Richard Schiff yes. winning the Emmy and you don't have them really totally. understanding what they have in him and how they can use him. Um, you I know agree. what I mean? I think they knew from the like. Uh, one of my favorite pieces of trivia that I learned uh, polishing up for this mm-hmm. episode is that Eugene Levy was in contention for this for the role of Toby Ziegler, and Isn't that's that crazy? that's wild. Uh, and it's a, it would have been <laughs> great, but very different. You know what I mean? Funnier, yeah, but not as soulful. <laughs> nearly, you know what I mean? That's no not no, Eugene no, no. Levy, and like yeah. that just weariness. That Richard Schiff brings yeah. to everything is well. His uh, eyes, yeah. I mean, you he's, know? he's just got these these. Uh, yeah, Richard Schiff. Um, Toby Ziegler is such a a, a fascinating and, and complex character, but also just um, a frustrating character, right? Like he's 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 a character that that pushes you and and can annoy you, mm-hmm. uh, and and there's an acknowledgement in that in Richard Schiff. Um, I think about just sort of. Um, you know, those big moments in, in the Toby arc, but, you know, one of the biggest ones is when he tries to get back with his ex-wife and his ex-wife does not want to get back together with him. Mm-hmm. And she just says, I can't deal with your sadness. Like, I don't want that in my life anymore. Uh, and I don't want our kids to be dealing with that either. I mean, that is just a, a brutal, brutal thing um, that, that, quite frankly, I'm not sure Toby ever really gets over. Uh, but yeah, it, it, they really put Toby through the ringer. And I think it's partially because Richard Schiff was willing to go there. And I don't know that, I mean, I think that Eugene Levy's Toby Ziegler would have been a 
very different character, but a fascinating one in, in its own right. Yeah. But um, but yeah, a lot more borscht belt. <laughs> I've started thinking about um, just since we started talking about this. I've started thinking about mm-hmm. like how he contrasts to Josh and Sam, who are like young puppies. Basically, they're like golden retriever puppies, right? They're like yeah. so yeah. excited to be there, like Jack Russell Terriers, or whatever they are, right? And like, and I was like, and like <laughs> CJ's like this sleek greyhound. I'm not even a dog person, so I don't yeah. know why I'm thinking, casting them as dogs. But I was like, but Toby is like. <laughs> Toby's obviously the Basset Hound, you know yeah. what I mean? And it's just sort of like, <laughs> yes, you yes. know, but like... He's Eeyore. He's yeah. Eeyore, but you're glad he's there. And uh, and you need all kinds. Totally. And you need that contrast of of his weariness and Josh and Sam sort of like, um, <laughs> you know, high energy uh, go together so well. So, yeah. It, it's also, you know... Um, to wrap up, I'll just say that, you know, the top of season two, you have the two-part premiere where we get to meet all the people in the team and how they all kind of came together. Yeah. And you get to meet Toby um, uh, at a bar drinking and a, a woman there asks him how many campaigns he's won. <laughs> he says, including this one? She says, yes, zero. Yeah. Um, it, it is, um, he's just, uh, he is a, a, a sad guy but he longs to be good and he longs for he's he's optimistic even with all the things that are like that's the thing that i find so that the, the light inside toby that you can't kill this idea that like the, the the american ideal of what this country could be the possibility of it even with him just being a a, a dark cloud <laughs> or this you know eeyore type character he's always sort of sees the 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 potential yeah. um which is just is just tremendous, and, and and by the way, kind of the the perfect uh, foil for the show. Yeah, no, and just to say one more thing about that season two two parter, which Please. is some of my favorite stuff. Love love that. Yeah, isn't it wild that Mandy isn't there <laughs> when they talk about like it's crazy? Like <laughs> they talk about what she did for them is like the whole premise of like yeah. why she's in the back and the we need Ugh. to get her back we need to get mandy back and it's like where the hell was mandy in the campaign let's not talk about it ever. i also just would say too on the mandy thing and, and to, to put a to put a a period at the end of the sentence uh it's so easy to have a throwaway line when in not even in the you don't even need to do it in the two-parter where everything's crazy and everyone's being shot and all these sort of whatevers in episode three, you could have just been like, Mandy went to go work at blah, blah, blah. And then we yeah. all would have been like, no, okay, fine. Like, we wouldn't have cared, right. ultimately, maybe. But, like, just, what? Or even, I don't know, when Sorkin's gone, someone could have, you know, I, I kind of felt like Mandy could have been brought back. She like, really should have been in the final season. Done. Just, like, not, it doesn't have to be significant. Yeah. Just, like, one episode. Yeah. It would have healed a lot of things. <laughs> And maybe then Moira <laughs> Kelly would give an interview about the West Wing. <laughs> That's true too. Yeah, Which she just very anyway. conspicuously hasn't. So you know, has she? I mean, what is Moira Kelly? Has she kind of just disappeared a little she bit? She did or One weird? Tree Hill. I know she did that okay, for okay. a long while, okay. and hopefully she's okay. just feasting off those residuals. Uh, that's what I hope. I I, I never watched One Tree Hill, so that's why I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. But also did not. But I am aware that she was like <laughs> the Cindy Walsh of One Tree Hill. So you okay, know, good to know. Good to yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Well, Joetta, thank you so much for coming on to talk about uh, the West Wing with me. I very much always a thrill, it. always a delight. <laughs> uh, I look forward to to you coming back for television in the future. 
One last thing, please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, Speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Also, please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's. Thank you to Ernie and Will for producing our episode, Sullivan for our social media, Yonkatas for our artwork and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. It's 1999. Podcast like it's. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.